Hello, friends, and welcome to the Waterworks podcast. We are a few episodes into season two, and this podcast is me talking about some stuff related to evil and peace and how the two intersect or don't. I am Karen Weiss, the director of Waterworks Ministries. I'm a spiritual director, coach, trainer, and retreat leader, and an anti-human trafficking advocate. Waterworks Ministries is a ministry primarily of prayer, and we do this to empower, um, provide knowledge, and nurture to people. We teach people how to pray. Uh, We lead retreats and training. We do justice work, spiritual direction, and coaching and healing. I encourage you to check out our website at www.waterworksministries.org to learn more about our work and to contact us to schedule your spiritual direction or coaching session. We recently streamlined our website and we'd love your feedback. We're also scheduling for spring and summer 2018 workshops and retreats. So if you'd like us to lead your group in a retreat, contact us through the website or our Facebook page. So yesterday, if you listened to yesterday's Thanksgiving bonus episode podcast, you got a surprise uh, song from me that is one of my family's uh, traditions. We sing it every Thanksgiving, and I have no idea where it comes from, but it's just something we do thanks to my grandmother. Um, Today's podcast, um, however, is about evil and how evil is within each one of us. Many people don't want to acknowledge that they themselves have a great capacity for evil. You know, when was the last time you heard someone say, I have a great capacity for evil? Yeah, um, probably never. We'd much rather think of ourselves as good, just, and compassionate. Unfortunately, I think we're deluding ourselves. And as we heard from one of the previous podcasts with Dr. Mary Beth Morrison on Gregory Boyd's work entitled Satan and the Problem of Evil, Constructing a Trinitarian Warfare Theodicy, um, those who are created with an abundant capacity for good can also use that capacity for great evil. So a few years ago, maybe four years ago at this point, I had a direction session with my spiritual director. Now, as a side note, for those of you who don't know what direction is, it is a conversation between the director who is trained and the directee with the acknowledgement that God is at work in the room, informing the director's guidance, questions, and comments to the directee. And there's also an acknowledgement that God is working to open the directee up to grace in some way. Um, These sessions are usually an hour long, about once a month. Um, Sometimes spectacular spiritual shifts happen, like what you're going to hear me describe, but other times the work of grace is much more subtle, but God always shows up. So back to my spiritual direction session with my director. I don't remember how we got on the topic, but the idea of peace was brought up by me. God had been leading me through the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5, 22 to 23. Um, And Galatians is a short letter in the Christian Bible. It's one of Paul's letters to the Galatians. And so as I was working through 
the fruit of the spirit, the first two being love and joy, the next that I had arrived at was peace. And so my director suggested that I have a conversation with Jesus about what peace is. And the following vision is what I received. So I closed my eyes and I instantly got this picture um, of me and Jesus standing on a cliff overlooking a valley. The valley was broad and it didn't have any trees. Um, the same with the ground that Jesus and I were standing on. It was devoid of trees, pretty windy, but it was grass covered and, and, and rocky. Uh, for those of you who like movies, think Braveheart scenery. Now that I've been to the western coast of Ireland, it looks something like that too, devoid of trees, windy and green. So Jesus meets me on this cliff. And Jesus, for some reason, as yet to be disclosed in my prayer time, looked to me like the ghost of Christmas present from the movie A Christmas Carol, specifically the George C. Scott version. So sidebar here. I mentioned yesterday in my podcast that I was going to talk about one of our other family traditions and watching a Christmas Carol with the George, well, specifically the George C. Scott version of a Christmas Carol movie um, is one of my family's longstanding uh, traditions. And so for me to have Jesus show up like the ghost of Christmas present brought a whole lot of things to mind. Um, it brought my family, it brought you know, tradition, love, Christmas, all of these things together. So back to Jesus. Now Jesus as the dressed as the ghost of Christmas present was giant, like seven or eight feet tall. He had a velvet robe, a red velvet robe with white fur trimming um, around the neck and the cuffs. It was weird. I admit, but I rolled with it because that's when you do when you're talking to Jesus and using your imagination. It, it's interesting to see where things lead, as we'll get to later. So Christmas Jesus, Christmas present Jesus and I are standing on this cliff and I start to argue with him. I was struggling with why people fought all the time, why people couldn't get along with each other, why there had to be all this conflict. And at that point in my life, I was fairly conflict averse, regardless of whether it was good or bad conflict. Uh, things have now changed, but this is where I was at that point. So I'm looking at Jesus, chastising him for not intervening um, and ignoring what is happening in the valley. And he asks me, what is peace? And I respond, well, it's the absence of fighting. Jesus looks at me very kindly and says, look at the valley. So we turn to look out over this gigantic valley and I see two armies fighting. Now it's really like something out of Braveheart now with lots of leather, metal, horses clanging. Jesus then describes to me what I think peace is. And as he describes it, the armies do what he is saying. So Jesus says to me, Karen, you think that peace is the absence of something. You want these army to be laid out flat so they don't have the energy to fight. But peace is not that. It's the presence of something else. 
So while the armies are in suspended animation, lying flat with their backs on the ground, I start to argue with Jesus again. Because after all, that's how I roll. Just because Jesus is God doesn't mean that I have to be nice to him. And I couldn't understand what he was trying to describe to me. So we went back and forth, and finally I said, Jesus, I need an image or something I can see to know what you mean when you describe peace. Jesus says, look at the valley again. I look and I see the armies up off the ground, standing, looking pretty confused at first. Then they turn in onto themselves, really. Think of like a red team and a blue team that each gather in a circle so they aren't engaging the other team, kind of like a football huddle before the start of a play. So all of a sudden, each army gathers and starts hugging their fellow countrymen, brothers, cousins, uncles, nephews, fathers, sons, neighbors. And as I stood watching this with Jesus standing next to me, I felt like this hugging signified reconciliation between family and neighbors and that it indicated restored relationships, forgiveness, and healing. As Jesus and I stood there watching, it went on for a while and each person healed their broken relationships within their own clan, within their own people. And after this restoration was complete, the armies looked at each other, turned in opposite directions, and went home. There was no need to fight anymore, and the relationships had been restored within their own tribe, and the beef between kingdoms wasn't important anymore. This understanding of peace left me with a profound and really wordless awe. I couldn't describe what I was feeling or thinking because the vision was so different from what I was expecting. And as you might imagine, because I'm talking to you about it today, four years later, this vision has stayed with me and has deeply influenced how I see the world, people groups, and individuals. So after I gained some composure from seeing this deep reconciliation and restoration, I started talking to Jesus again. As we continued looking out over the valley, I wanted to know how to make this reconciliation and peacemaking happen. This was such a foreign concept for me that I had no idea where to begin. I was completely at a loss. So I asked Jesus. Now, key point here, remember that he looked like the ghost of Christmas present? Well, there was a reason for that. So Jesus, he's standing facing me and pulls back the robe from his legs. And like in the movie, A Christmas Carol, I see two emaciated children. Jesus says, Peace starts with the removal of want and ignorance from your own being. It's knowing that no matter what happens, peace is a state of mind that you choose to live in or not. This prayer was four-ish years ago, and so fast forward to a few weeks ago. I was listening to a liturgist podcast about enemies from October 3rd while on pilgrimage in Ireland. And while I was listening to this podcast, I was reminded of this direction session about peace. My mind was connecting the dots between having enemies and living in peace. The two, I think, are somewhat mutually exclusive. And sometimes enemies come from want and ignorance of our own stuff. 
we vilify presidents, celebrities, and other random people because we aren't willing to admit that we are quite capable of the same terrible actions. We believe that we are better than them. And to the contrary, I believe that it is spiritual or internal want and ignorance that cause injustice and evil in this world. This has been a tough lesson to learn what peace is, and I haven't quite learned it yet. Nor do I think I'll ever really learn it fully in this life, but I've been living into it for four plus years. For me, peace manifests itself as a feeling of deep and abiding contentment with myself and my situation. So let's unpack want for a moment. Want is simply the lack of something. If you know Psalm 23, uh, the King James Version, the psalmist says, he shall not want. It means that he is in need of nothing. And want in a personal context is the perceived lack of something or the need of something. And our Western culture tells us all the time that we lack, we want for something. We lack the new iPhone, so we need to rush out and buy it. We lack the latest fashion. We lack bouncy and shiny hair. We lack the perfect mate. We lack, we lack, we lack. We want, we want, we want. Advertisers thrive on creating a perceived need and then telling you what will fill that need. It's ironic that we celebrate Thanksgiving and then get obsessive over getting deals and steals on Black Friday. To me, this compulsion shows our spiritual want. My personal quest to root out want from my soul has led me to begin to believe statements like, I am enough and I have enough. It's when we think that we're lacking or are lacking something that we can get pretty rammy. We then go into proving mode where we try to prove our worth through action. We buy the next new gadget that we can't afford. We take care of everyone but ourselves or we demean or make others feel bad about themselves. We give into want when we make our own well-being predicated on an external factor or thing or job or role in life. And we give into want all the time. I think it's no coincidence that the minimalist movement is growing significantly in the US. Minimalism rejects the American cultural construct that we are only happy when we have lots of new shiny things and that more is always better. Minimalism encourages embracing simplicity and I think in many ways minimalism provides an antidote to want. Richard Foster, almost 40 years ago now, highlights that an important spiritual discipline is the practice of simplicity in his book, The Celebration of Discipline, and it was originally published in 1978, which was a great year. Anyway, so Foster even lists 10 things that are part of simplicity, like considering usefulness as opposed to status, rejecting addiction, giving things away, using plain speech, and rejecting all things that dehumanize or oppress others, just to name a few. And he actually wrote an entire book on simplicity. Jesus taught us about simplicity as well. He was very specific when sending his disciples out to heal and teach. He told them to not take anything with them and trust that God would provide for their needs. 
Apart from the fact that this was an exercise for the disciples to learn to trust in difficult situations, it was also a reminder that you don't need stuff, which I find funny because compared to today, they owned nothing, like three outfits, one pair of sandals, a boat for the fishermen in the group, and if you like Rob Bell, the boat and a goat. Check out Ron and Don with a goat and a boat from Rob Bell. It's hysterical. So these very minimal things are all that they would have had. A couple outfits, pair of sandals, maybe a boat and some sheep. And yet Jesus told them not to worry about their physical needs. Embrace simplicity and we will want for nothing. Our want and ignorance show up in part because we believe that we're not enough or don't have enough. So we show ignorance when we accept that we are in a constant state of want. But as we become more self-aware, we decrease our want through this reduction of ignorance. And ignorance is a state of being where we lack a specific thing, namely education, awareness, or knowledge. And our want often comes from our ignorance. We bear ignorance of our self-worth, of our dignity, of our respect in many cases. We don't understand our personal motivations or why we need certain things and have specific patterns of behavior. So how do we gain knowledge and reduce ignorance? Well, I'm so glad you asked because we take quizzes, of course. Now, some people hate them and find them completely unhelpful, but I have always loved a good personality quiz. My mom has even remarked to me how much I love taking the quizzes in the 17 magazine that I'd get in high school. It was like the first thing that I did. So I admit that I am somewhat of a personality test junkie. Um, but that being said, I've found these tests to be immensely helpful and educational, especially about some of my behaviors that I now find amusing and some people probably still find annoying. I have done the Myers-Briggs type inventory, the Enneagram, the DISC leadership profile, and the Strength Finders 2.0. I've read books on prayer for your Myers-Briggs type, read about the different numbers in the Enneagram, and really laughed out loud when I read my strengths from the Strengths Finder profile. Apparently, it's in my personality not to give compliments or praise for doing your job or doing something that someone said that they were going to do. My life makes so much more sense now after I read that. People who need affirmation on a regular basis don't hang around me very much because I don't give it, really ever, unless you've done something truly exceptional. Like in March, I was at the International Justice Mission Global Prayer Gathering. Um, that was exceptional. When I was in Liscanner, Ireland at the Cliffs of Moore Retreat Center, their food was exceptional, truly. And I use that word on average twice a year. So I probably won't use it between now and the end of 2017. So these are the kind of things that are good to know about yourself so you can understand your behavior patterns and inherent quirkiness. But just because that's part of my personality doesn't mean that it's always a good thing. So for example, I now try to be intentional about giving compliments and praise more often, not because I've lowered my standards, but because giving affirmation shows appreciation, gratitude, and respect. And people deserve 
to be shown those things. And so giving affirmation is one of the ways that I do that. Um, we need to know ourselves and get rid of ignorance so that we can reduce, um, reduce the want and the suffering that we put into the world. One of the ways that you can do that is spiritual direction. You know, what I recounted to you was God coming to me uh, to share a message that he had for me, apparently. Uh, and Jesus was there and we chatted and it was an amazing thing. And hopefully my want and ignorance were reduced and the evil that I put out into the world was reduced because of that prayer time specifically. But also regarding ignorance, I think that education and knowledge and even awareness aren't things that are primarily external to us. They're both internal and external. We need to be self-aware so that we can understand how our actions affect and impact others. And when we understand how our behaviors impact others, problems, situations, we can take ownership of our part in evil and acknowledge that we are working with God's help really to be better. So when we live with want and ignorance, whether it's conscious or unconscious, we give evil a home and the vicious cycle continues. We continue to be ignorant of the evil we facilitate and we deny that we have the capacity to do harm. Um, so when we ignore our ignorance, um, it's, it's ignoring our shadow self, which is something um, that Richard Rohr calls it, our shadow side. Um, some people call it maybe our ego, depends on your language. But I was with a directee a couple days ago and she was remarking that our politics and governing leaders are a reflection of the inability of our culture to look at our shadow self. Our culture is ignorant of its faults and thus we are capable of electing a person like Donald Trump who in my words, seems to have serious impulse control issues. The people who brought the Trump hype, I'm sorry, the people who bought the Trump hype in many ways do want their lives to be better. And they hoped that he would help their families bring jobs back, etc. And so some people were more concerned with their financial well-being than with his demeaning rhetoric. I can understand that. But on the other side of things, there are people that are still not over the fact that Hillary Clinton didn't get elected. It's been a year. Seriously, we need to move on. But to speak to my point about ignorance, both sides, both extreme Trump haters and extreme Trump supporters, I think are ignorant of their own spiritual stuff in many ways. And so it comes out in rhetoric and hate and the very visible display of a lack of self-awareness that is quite stunning to me and not stunning in a good way. We all need to check ourselves because evil is within. One person does not make or break a country. One president does not make or break a country. And so if we're not diligent, our ignorance and want take control and become the drivers in our lives. This is, as I've said, 
one of the many reasons I love spiritual direction because it gives us a space to look at our shadow selves, our want, and our ignorance. And since I'm Methodist, I would be remiss if I didn't mention John Wesley and his focus on small groups to hold people accountable to their spiritual journey. Wesley's focus was very much on rooting out personal evil, increasing personal holiness, and growing in God's love and grace. And so, if you desire to grow in some way, but don't have a small group or spiritual director, find one or create a group with people that you trust, who you know are on the spiritual journey too. Because opening ourselves up to look at our shadow selves, to look at our want and ignorance, can be a really, really scary thing. And so a safe place provides the freedom to bring what we've been hiding into the light. Thank you so much for listening. Grace and peace. And have an amazing and blessed day.